Mo, come here, buddy. You're going to be in the movies. And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. Identity. It's a big word. It's an important word. And it seems these days that it's a word that also creates friction. Something that divides rather than connects. It shouldn't be that way. A sense of identity, self, belonging. That's the stuff that makes us human. It's really only in being whole myself that I can even begin to connect with others. That's where today's guest fits in. If you were to look at Sharina Tessum's resume, you'd probably call her a producer, maybe a content creator, possibly a media executive. And those are all titles that she's held. She was a VP at a creative agency. She's founded and run media businesses of her own. It's her newest chapter, though, that I think best reflects who Shireen actually is. I've had the pleasure of knowing her personally for a long time, and I know her as a storyteller. And she says that the last six years have been the most important story that she could ever tell. And that's what she's doing. It's a journey of transformation on so many levels. And it's one that she is perfectly suited to take. It's also something that harkens back in no small way to a lesson that she learned through a confrontation with a group of wild dogs when she was six years old. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. It's so good to see you, and even better to be in this conversation with you. We have had so many conversations about so many different things over the years. Um, so many. Our life journeys have taken some interesting turns. And um, when I was thinking about who are the people I know who are living in a kind of transformed state of leadership, people who push the envelope, you are, are definitely someone who, um, when someone says that cannot be done, you, you don't generally take that very much as a mandate. You're like, mm, I don't know. So for example, when people said that a an a 24-hour entirely lesbian content media channel wasn't necessarily going to work, that there wasn't enough content first of all, that there wasn't enough interest second of all. Um you ignored them, you went ahead anyway. I'm OML is now at where does that sit now in terms of your in terms of your volume of people listening to content and watching content? Um well, I, as a 24/7 television channel, um it, it it has a reach of 250 million plus devices and households, so quite a bit. And then um we have our 
YouTube um, subscribers, which um, is nearly 700,000 strong um, and very, very active. Our, our channel now has had, I think, over 400 um, million minutes. We're, we're inching toward the half a billion uh, uh, view mark, which is impressive. Um, yeah, so she she says humbly, <laughs> um, with a gentle shrug of the shoulders. Yeah, you know, OML was a passion play of mine. Um, I think at a time when, um, you know, I was living in Sonoma at the time, and um, it, everything was so much about my um, partner at the time and the kids, and I think it was my way of finding my own identity. Um, and it was something that was also really necessary because at the time, if you Googled lesbian film or lesbian TV, um, it's it, pretty much porn. It was all like porn. pretty much what would come up with porn. And it was primarily, um, heterosexual male produced. Correct. Porn. Correct. So OML really mm -hmm. was born with the idea of there really should be a central place for quality lesbian films. Um, videos that aren't pornographic. Um, and what started as a database ended up becoming this amazing platform and many uh, content creators now use it as uh, a promotional platform. And um, we have many series and uh, and we've created, We it started out as One More Lesbian um, and that was a blessing and a curse in that SEO-wise, um, it really helped, um, but uh, we were blocked. Um, and a couple of years ago, we rebranded to OML. Everybody calls it OML anyway. So, um, so yes, um, as far as uh, rules go, um, my kids know it already. I encourage them to... Um, follow the rules, but when needed to possibly bend them. <laughs> so, well, and, and, and there's a, there's a word that you mentioned that I think that I feel, um, when I think of you, when you come to mind, the word identity, that you are someone who is deeply connected to your family. You're deeply connected to your cultural heritage. Yeah. Um, you are of Persian, not, not descent, Persian existence. Your family is a, an enormous, tightly knit, very connected family. You are connected to a cascading community beyond your family. Uh, you have a strong sense of identity and self. And it's something that I have had the great privilege of watching you really settle into over the years. Um, I would love for you to talk about that journey and kind of the cultural journey and your your position as a as a leader in the lesbian community, you know, how that fits with your cultural heritage and the beautiful family that you that you now have as part of your identity as well. Um, well, thank you for acknowledging it. Um, yeah, the I love being Iranian for, I mean, we have our, yeah, if, if, uh, you've ever seen Shaws of Sunset, that's like <laughs> the worst of the worst. So we have our stuff. Um, but I think culturally we're pretty amazing and, um, you know, there isn't a whole lot of insight into Iran, but if politics aside, it is, I mean, 
if you go to the country, you'll want to hug everybody and everybody will hug you whether you want it or not. They will literally open their doors and let you in. I mean, that's just how we are. And as a culture, we are um, extroverted. Um, I think introverted Iranians have a really hard time. Um, and what I think is really different vis-a-vis leadership um, and I could point to um, various leaders within Silicon Valley, um, uh, I think almost all male, unfortunately, um, but, um, but others outside of Silicon Valley, female included, everybody is family oriented. And um, I don't see that happening in the US, like the whole idea of, of work-life balance like that's not even a thing, you know, like it's. Well, don't you think, though? So I think also, I mean, let's let's take a, a quick side trip into the the myth of work life balance and the idea of things being, you know, there's a there's the reality of balance, which is you look at scales. Right. So like the scales of justice, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the, one. It's there's a there's a give and take to it. It's not, you know, scales don't sit. The scales of justice don't sit like this, right? At the end of a court case, there's not a tie. You know, one side wins, one side loses. Right. Right. I had that conversation in another uh, another episode with someone about that. That it's about give and take. Actual actual balance, as as a term to weighted balance, is about give and take. If I am at my child's soccer game, I am not working on the presentation. If I am on a business trip, I might miss the recital. Like so, I like I there, so there's that that give and take that happens. However, and I don't know whether this is because we are women, that there's this myth that you're supposed to be able to do it all. You're supposed to be able to work a 40-hour week, look impeccable, have the house clean, take care of the kids, feed everybody, take care of everybody's needs, and do that all without becoming a homicidal maniac. (laughs) Yeah. um, I want to throw two things in there. I actually had that. Um, even, uh, in my previous relationship, even, um, uh, though I was with a woman, so it's not exclusive to, Oh, no, no, not gender. I'm not talking. It's not a gender. Thank you for bringing that up. That this is not a gender specific thing. This is about familial relationship and this expectation that's, you know, right. So they're supposed to be able to do everything. Well, so there's that. And then with Iranians, I think specifically, and I think that there's other cultures that have it, Family is so ingrained. It's almost like, you know, you talk about systematic. It, it's, it, it's in our DNA from, you know, I mean, if you grow up in a traditional Iranian family, which most Iranians do because there's great pride in it, um, it's all built in. So there isn't this um, dichotomy of pursuing your career or having a family life. You have a family life that is given that you base everything from. And and I that doesn't exist here. And or I see it very seldom. Actually, strangely enough, more in the South than than here, you know, where family is more important than one's career. So um so I'll say that I I feel that my identity, as as you mentioned, is really based in that. And having a, like, from the get-go, 
I've had the safety net of my family from the get-go, and we haven't always gotten along. But I mean, I struck gold, I, it, it, lottery, in that I knew, I've known, you know, my sister gives me a hard time, <laughs> even now, before. you know, older sister, and, you know, she still treats me like I'm 10 years old, but um, she has my back. And my parents, you know, like, regardless of what we disagree about, we always are there for one another. And that is what I hope to, to gift forward, you know, to the family that I now have. And I, and I feel that I have that. I mean, I see that in my kids. So. Well, and it's interesting, um, uh, in, in the first episode of, of this series, um, Julie Wainwright, the former CEO of you know, pets.com, which we all know, and of course now the CEO of therealreal.com. So nothing like going from um, colossal, very public humiliation and failure to like come back 10 years later and now have, you know, a multi-billion dollar publicly held company. Um, and well-regarded. And very well-regarded. Um, and one of the things that she said was, when you have failed so spectacularly, you're not afraid of anything because it's like, what are they going to do to you? It's what would you do if you if you knew you couldn't fail? And this idea of family, this idea of a cohesive safety net that you mentioned, that what role do you think that really plays for you in this very energy forward, very courageous approach to trying new things? I think it's made all the difference. I mean, I, I, um, you know, my dad early on, um, he and I have had so many great conversations, but I was in my teens when, um, you know, and he always gave me these nuggets. And one of them was, um, at some point he said, you know, um, you could drop me anywhere in the world. And I will learn not only how to survive, but how to thrive. And that's always stuck with me, you know? Um, and, um, and also, like, the idea that I could do anything. I don't know a lot, <laughs> but um, if I wanted, for example, to build a high-rise, because that's what I wanted to do, I know that I would find the steps to it. I would find those people. I would, you know what I mean? Well, it helps. And it, and it helps to have, you know, family roots in building things. Well, that too. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. Yes. Two architects. I mean, you're, in my... You know, father, father has, you know, some skill on that front. A little building. bit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, anything, if I wanted to, you know, um, I don't know, become an astronaut, I suppose I just would have to call Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, right? (laughs) So um, different cultures have different experiences of animals as part of the family and what animals mean in a family. And um, tell me a little bit about your growing up, your early family memories and what is the earliest? Because you and I, you and I actually know each other. <laughs> I think that's so how we met, we, right? Shireen, you and I met um, in Alta Plaza Park in San Francisco um, because you were with one of the largest dogs I had ever seen. I, I, I think uh, actually 25 pounds 
less than the largest dog in the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big dog. Yeah. So that was that was Mouse. Yes. And, and he topped out at 240, I think. Yeah. Big Bubba. All love. He was a big and he was just um one of my earliest recollections of him, I was just like giving him a big like shimupi hug. He started like lick, licking at my forearm and I looked down and the entirety of my arm from my elbow to the tip of my fingers was actually in his mouth. Oh. And I thought to myself, I'm really glad that he's not going to bite down right now. Oh, my God. Because that wouldn't go out no. like that. That would have gone really badly and for me in Yvonne that moment. used to, for a comfort, Yvonne, no, that's actually Romeo. Um, I guess the tradition mm. continues, but uh, our Newfoundland. But she used to um, watch TV with her arm literally in his mouth, like all of it. And he would be kind of gnawing and she would be in there. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Okay. Now, so maybe I'll take that part out since it sounds mildly terrifying that you were letting an enormous dog gnaw on your child. Yes. Okay. For maybe. the record, for the record, you weren't letting the dog gnaw on your child. Um, no, but you and I met. Um, you know, so I I know you to be someone of of dogs in your life. Does this predate? You know, how far back does this go, and what's your earliest memory of of a dog in your life? Um. Well, um, funny you should ask. So I, uh, the first dog that we got uh, was a um, collie and um, named Prince. And my, he came to us as Prince. And um, given that we just had come from a monarchy, um, my dad was a little uncomfortable with that. So we started calling him Princey. Um, so, uh, I had Princey. So you made him get, you made him gay, like right away. Totes. <laughs> Totes gay. <laughs> um, I'm like, all right. Um, so, uh, got him when I was nine. Um, and now in Iran, a lot of people have, uh, pets, um, and especially dogs. But at the time when I was growing up, um, they didn't. And, um, so the dogs that were in Iran, um, were wild, um, like street dogs, street dogs. dogs. Um, so my earliest memory of dogs, uh, was actually something to fear. Um, so they, like there wasn't a whole lot of education in it. And uh, we lived in Tehran and uh, we have um, and continue to have a villa in the Caspian Sea. My dad actually developed that whole area and our family had first dibs. So we had a lot of family that was um, that was in that same area. And um, in the mornings, we would walk from one house to the next, like my cousins and all of that. And we were tiny. All of us were like six, seven, eight, nine. And, um, and it's really super lush, like dense, um, tropical forest, um, which most people don't associate with Iran, but in the Caspian Sea, it definitely is lush. So, um, I was weaving my way to my cousin's house and I took a corner and there was this uh, like wooden platform um, that um, we would play around and and have like mock performances on. And um, I turned the corner and there was a pack of dogs. And I'm not kidding you, 
like 50 of them and me alone as I was either six or seven. So I turned and again, all I know of dogs is stay away from them. Um, And suddenly there's 50 of them and it was like a movie. I turned and they all turned and looked at me and something in me said, do not run. Like I, I, I knew that I, if I ran, it would be bad. So um, I decided at that moment, um, my heart was pounding like crazy, was to walk toward them. Um, and I don't know what it was in me that um, made me do it, but I just followed what felt right. So I went and I slowly sat um, on the platform and um, some dogs ignored me and other ones just came up and sniffed me. I didn't attempt to touch them. And I just sat there and, and looked into their eyes and could smell them. And, and that, I think, was one of those aha moments where I realized that facing your fear can completely shift your paradigm at six or seven without knowing what paradigm was or, or frankly that, you know, you could relate to fear differently, but I did. And then I sat there, I don't know for how long, um, you know, and I had like these, like suddenly I felt powerful and I felt like Tarzan and, (laughs) um, and then I slowly walked away and went to my cousin's house. Of course, nobody would believe me, but, um, it did happen. So that's uh, my earliest recollection. And then after that, I just really wanted a dog and had to wait a few years. And finally, and I'm the only one in my family that owns pets. It's just, I mean, again, my parents didn't grow up with it and my sister has never been a pet person. So, um, yeah. One of the things that I find remarkable about so many of the conversations that I get the the blessing to have um, is when I ask that question and we dig in to these formative memories, which happen at all different ages, but the vast majority of the experiences are experiences that people are relating from roughly the first eight to 10 years of their life, is that in those moments, those lessons that got learned are tied directly in some way, shape, or form to what they're doing in the present day, either what they're doing or how they're doing it or, or their means of doing it, which just goes back to the, well, it's, what was that book, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten, yep. that all of these things in my life, these formative moments, both good and bad, are connected to experiences of my life that came from that, you know, birth to eight, 10 year old time frame, which is just mind blowing to me. Um, I have a, a, the, you paint the picture very well. Not a surprise, considering that you are a storyteller also by trade um, about that experience. So fast forward for me to where you are now. So um, you have started a new venture in the last couple of years. Besides the, besides the, 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 you're married now and have you know, like forming a new family. That's one venture of one sort. Um, but Slay is a, a business that is that I rem- I was 
there when you minted it. I think we were sitting in your kitchen in Mill Valley the weekend that it was maybe born um, or came to life. So talk a little bit about the work that you're doing today and and how some of these practices really come into into your world? Well, um, there's actually a new, new um, uh, venture. So I started Slay in 2000. We're going to get to, we're going to get to that one in a minute. Okay. So um, uh, I started. Don't jump ahead. Don't jump ahead. No problem. I started um, Slay in um, 2017. um, And the idea really was that I I was working at a um, creative agency um, that had so much potential, but I um, really butted heads with um, my boss, which doesn't usually happen. There's, I, I say that there's two people that I would never work with ever again. Um, he was one of them. Um, uh, and, and really, I mean, brought me into the agency to revamp it, to scale it. Um, to change the culture and stood in my way every s- single step. Um, so I left with the idea of, you know, I could do the same thing better with a lot less white noise, um, you know, less pomp and circumstance um, and give a much better client experience. And um, and we've done that, uh, which has been amazing. Being at the tech hub of the world, the majority of um, our clients have been uh, technology uh, companies. But um, yeah, we've had some really amazing um, projects, and uh, and I'm really proud of the work we're doing. Yeah. Now. Um- when you think about that as the stepping stone to where you have gone, I mean, where you are today and kind of the new evolution of of you. I mean, when you and I first connected a couple of weeks ago regarding my own pivot and shift, um, uh, your response was something along the lines of, guess what, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't surprise me. So. When you think about, and and we'll lead into it, kind of, I want to come into it a little bit sideways. When we look at today's world, you know, I think that we in the last, we as a civilization in the last 24 months have had uh, a lot of time to think, mostly because for a goodly portion of that, we couldn't go anywhere because there was nowhere to go and going places was dangerous anyway. Um, that we've had more time to sit and watch and think, um, more times to tribalize, more times to uh, other. Um, There are lots of people in the world or groups in the world who would keep the world destabilized because it's how they maintain their power and control. Um, But I think that there is also a great awakening for lack of a better description, that I am feeling very much. um, And it's happening everywhere. It's happening. um, It would be nice if it were happening more in governing bodies. I think it will happen because the rest of us will kind of force that to happen. Um, But it's happening in tech. It's happening in finance. It's happening in food and beverage and gaming and real estate and 
parenting, and it's happening in all these aspects of our lives, this kind of awakening to um, something different. So share a bit. what When I say that, what comes up for you and where do you see yourself fitting into that? Where's your puzzle piece go? Um, I mean, uh, at least in my world, right in in the middle of it, <laughs> I should say, um, my universe. Um, I, you know, um, COVID is no less tragic. I mean, it's it's the deaths, the disease, um, all of it, and you know, like when you have a break up and people say one day you'll say thank you, <laughs> you know? Um, and I kind of feel like that with COVID, you know, the, the great pause, we've so needed it globally and, and nothing else. I mean, like you can't think of anything else that would slow us down, pause the way that we have, because we've had to. And on a personal level, I, I, I know it sounds strange to say, but I'm grateful for it. I, I feel that I have a better relationship with my kids, with my wife, and with myself because of it. Um, that kind of introspection wasn't really possible when you are keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, all the FOMO (laughs) and, um, you know, like when all of that subsides, what you're stuck with is what is and what's present. And for me, that's been transformational. Um, So I wrote a book. Um, uh, the book isn't, uh, as one does. Yes. Um, the book isn't, um, uh, just about, uh, now, but it's really about, um, the, um, years after my breakup, which was at the end of 2013 with my, um, partner, uh, and dear friend of the time. Um, and we were friends and partners for, um, over 22 years. So fairly substantial. Um, and, uh, I spent the next six years, um, what I call bopping for spiritual apples. And, um, so I wrote, how'd that work for, how'd that work for you? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, I, for the longest time, cause you got, cause you got to dunk your head all the way under the water sometimes. Many times. Um, mm-hmm. and I, uh, my motto, especially in the early days was better than this. Like I just knew that there was a space that was better than what I was feeling at the time. And I knew that it would be baby steps. I knew it wasn't just about a broken heart. Like everything was broken. My thinking was broken. So, um, you know, how do you not just move on to a new chapter, but rewrite the book? So, um, so, so you wrote, the, so you wrote the book. So I, so I went on a journey that took about 
uh, six years and I really bobbed for spiritual apples. I, I, you know, took many different directions and, um, and in it all found my path and really now live a life that truly is, would have been unrecognizable to my 2013 self. Um, so, um, and if I may digress just, just briefly, the book really makes sense. So, so basically I, I turned those six years into, um, six weeks. So it's sort of like the artist's way for the soul. <laughs> um, and it's going to be coming out in, um, 2023 and, um, uh, more on well, that we later. More on that yeah. later. So, but the one thing I want to go back to, um, you talked about better relationship with your kids, better relationship with your wife, and as a result, a better relationship with yourself. Don't you think perhaps that it was actually the other way around, that it was the oh, connection with yourself that then fostered for sure. the, no, the, I, the, I, everything I, else? It wasn't, it wasn't, um, uh, you know, uh, better relationships with them, um, and therefore better relation. No, it's, it's better relationship with my kids, with my wife, with myself equally. But, um, but so, but here's, so here's, so here's, here's where I want to go with that because it's, it's something that I feel, especially for our generation, because we are of the generation who typically, I mean, you and I, are anomalous to this because of the families in which we were raised and how we were raised. But we are um, surrounded by a generation um, that has done a lot of things in the world and is relatively useless on an emotional intelligence level. Definitely. Based on the way our our parents who gave to us, you know, I want my kids to have things I didn't have and I want them to do things that I didn't do and their schedules are going to be booked here and they're going to go to this school. And so everything is about the doing of things rather than the being of experience. Absolutely. And then and then our generation largely gave birth to a generation that like doesn't even know how to show up for work on time, let alone put on pants in the morning. <laughs> and again, I'm painting with a very broad brush. Obviously, there are many exceptions to this, and there are people in both of our orbits who are, like us, anomalous to that, you know, stereotype. So there's this tension between sense of self and self-care, self-worth, self-awareness, and that utterly self-indulgent, navel-gazing self-absorption. And I think that some people maybe along the way, like, oh, well, I'm going to go find myself, and it becomes this you know, overly indulgent, self-indulgent, like navel-gazing, the world's all about me and I'm going to live my best existence. And there's, there's, there's a disconnect somehow in the, the idea that it is actually being of service in the world and going outside of yourself to do something for someone other than yourself that helps with that self-awareness. So I guess when you think about that lens and you think about how you approach that perspective, especially given the journey that you've taken, um, what what pops into mind for you? Um, you know, I mean, I think of self-care as fuel. I was running on MT. Um, I call it my, in the book, I call it my walking dead years. Um, and that's on me. 
You know, it, it's, uh, I mean, I could point to a bunch of other things and my ex, um, as reasons for it, but truly, you know, my choice. Um, and, uh, all the self-care that came in, um, those six years of, um, redoing, <laughs> undoing and redoing, um, really has served as fuel. And, um, you know, you're running on empty or you're not, I know it's cliche, but it's just like, I, you can't be there for your partner. You can't be there for your, um, for your kids. So, um, it absolutely begins, um, with self-care. And I think that if one goes into what you mentioned as far as this kind of like self-indulgence. I see that as a form of spiritual bypassing. Um, that if you are um, in that bubble and not really dealing with the things that you need to deal with, you're not really dealing with your life. You are bobbing in a bubble. <laughs> Thank you for the visual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Watching these people pop me away. Well, and I think that, um, you know, in the work in my own journey, especially in the last year or so, one of the things that as I've continued my excavation, as we all do, like every time I think there's another layer, this shovel hits like a, ooh, what's that? That's cool. And kind of blasting down and digging down underneath the next layer. Um, is is the victim story in which so many people sit and and I want to qualify that that a victim story I'm not talking about victim in kind of like the thing that immediately pops to mind for me when someone says victim story is like somebody who's always has bad things happening to them and you know somebody who's like always in a disaster who's always in a crisis like there's that there's kind of the prototypical like person of victimhood but the truth is that anytime I'm not in 100% responsibility for myself and my actions and my behavior. And I'm, and I'm assuming or expecting or behaving as though anything outside of myself has anything to do with what's going on inside of me. Um, that is a, a form of victim. Yeah, for sure. That I, had, that I hadn't thought about it that way before. Um, and, and that transformation can't happen in that state. At all, you know, at all, at all, and and I also love, you know, so you and I come from a very, um, you know, though different parts of very similar worlds in terms of being in Silicon Valley and around production and media and high performance individuals, and you know, you hear the word transformation, and like people are like, oh, that's really woo. -woo. What are you going to do? Go sit out at Spirit Rock, and like, and it's like, yeah. I I I I look for, I mean, yes, and <laughs> yes, and. Um, that I feel like it's time to reclaim the word as, as a viable, tangible, purposeful intention in business. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I mean, you were talking about, you know, uh, high IQ and very low EQ. Um, I think that, um, so much of that is 
missing, you know, uh, so often people talk about strategy and I'm like, build those relationships. Like it's all about the relationships. And as long as things continue to be strategy and bottom line and I mean, inclusive of that, but lead with relationships you know, and, and, and those relationships have to be based on authenticity. And what is authenticity except listening to your soul? And, you know, I'm working from it. So that it's those soul-to-soul conversations that build the relationships, that build solidity within partnerships um, that businesses thrive on. But that's not how we roll. So what would you say... So I think about some people in my own orbit who are um, professionally very successful, financially very successful. You look on paper at um, wealth beyond what most people can even comprehend, let alone aspire to in some cases. Um, The houses, the travel, all the things, all the things. And in some cases, spiritually broken and wounded and entirely unaware of that, right? They, they know that life is hard. They know that life is a struggle when it comes to personal stuff, like the professional life looks great or this looks great, but over here, this piece over here, and it festers, and they go from one broken relationship to another, for example. They have broken relationships with kids, for example. They have physical health issues that no amount of money, you know, despite the best doctors, can make go away, for example. Um, and that in those cases, the only solution for those things is it's an inside job. Right. Right. And so when you think about being an agent of change, which you are. Thank you. And being a leader, which you are, and you think about engaging in any capacity with people like that, where would you begin to think that we can start to help people like that heal? Because I think about what have they, what they've accomplished being emotionally wounded, think what they can do and the good they can do in the world on a grander scale if just we, we as a society were able to support them in those changes. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it depends on um, how much time <laughs> I have with a person because I think that um, I think that if if we're able to meet on a human level, and I think that that is um, what is often missing, you know, I mean. Uh, the people that you just mentioned are a byproduct of what is fed to us as far as what success means, right? So um, they've they've accomplished it. They've checked off all the boxes. I mean, they've done it. Um, so they are a byproduct of what they were taught. So, um, you know, I mean, if we had time the same way that... Um, 
and and an opening, um, then the conversation would be very much on a human level. Um, no, when you say obviously we're obviously they are humans, like they are, <laughs> you know. So when you say on a human level, like so, you're talking to somebody who spends her day job time these days having these kinds of conversations, air quotation marks, with non-humans, yeah. right? How do I engage with an, a creature of another species that's in an emotionally broken space yeah. and help guide it to a place of emotional wholeness so that behaviors that it has that are off-putting to its humans can be addressed. Yeah. Like that's that's literally what proper education of a dog is all about. It's working with the dog, helping the human to connect with the dog in that space and helping the dog connect with its human in that space and understand its space, period. So when you say human connection, what does that, what does that look like for you? What's the nature of the conversation? I think it's what is underneath it all. It is um, the the spirit that one had um, as a child, I mean, if you're so removed from actually feeling human and feeling um, whole um, and purposeful and, and, and all of that, but, but for me, human, um, humanness is being who you are and completely okay if not in love with that being for being and not for all the doings if that makes sense so all your doings don't add up to your humanness your being so so a person who has nothing who has i don't know there was a um, documentary on um happiness um and i have a whole uh theory around happiness and chase a whole different conversation correct um but (laughs) this guy i think he was in um bangladesh or calcutta and he's a um, tuk-tuk driver um and he is uh i don't know how they found him but a very happy human being and um and really what it comes down to is that he just is he is and he appreciates everything in his life and and everything that he has and and i think that we are awarded for being for for human doing rather than human being so if we started out in our education as you are perfect as you are you don't need to gain or do anything what do you want to do now how do you want to play? It, it would be completely different. So I don't fault those people who have, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world, you know, or the Mark Zuckerbergs or, or, or you know, and I'm not saying that they're soulless, but there's, that is what's revered. So no wonder they've gone for it. Mm. And, and I th- believe, you know, and we won't get into politics, but if we can meet at that human level underneath it all, then we could possibly have the conversations that could be transformative rather than your opinion versus my opinion. Um, and I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in my opinion, frankly. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you know, I have well, a, they're usually based on fear. They're usually based on fear anyway. Yeah. So, um, so that's opinion. what I mean about mm-hmm. human levels. So let me ask you this. What's your vision for the work you do, for the world that you want to live in? What's your vision? What's it look like? My vision is to have a world that is unrecognizable to us as we are now, the same way that I'm unrecognizable I to my 2013 self. And I think by doing that, it's, uh, you know, Einstein saying, I'm going to completely butcher it, you know, the idea of not finding a cure, you know, from a place um, where the disease was created or not creating peace from a place where there's war. Like, there needs to be a paradigm shift. And that's coming back to COVID and the pandemic. Like, what else would have created? Well, but I'm going to... So I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, opinionate. I'm going to challenge, My no, I'm going to challenge, no, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to challenge you on that. Cause I think about Go for it. moments in history yeah. where catastrophic incident has created a scenario of a great, uh, I'm not going to call it an awakening. I'm going to call it a comeuppance. Um, whether it be natural disaster or something at the hands of man. Like you can point at 9-11, you can point at World War II, you can point at Vietnam and what that did around the civil rights movement and activism. You can point at the 1918 flu. You can point at global um disaster, you know, you can point at disasters like, so those are all kind of man-driven things. You can point at hurricanes yeah, tsunamis, and earthquakes sure. and tsunamis and fires and, you know, God, you know, nature instilled things in the world where people come together in a moment and then go right back to where they were before. Yeah. And and of course, now is the time when my dogs are going to decide. Pause for one second. That's where I poke my head out of the studio. Ruthie, can you maybe come in here and stop yelling? Thanks. Is there a tiny door down there? <laughs> <laughs> is your door really so tiny? <laughs> so... Sorry. Like, is that Narnia? Oh, my God. I wish I'm in the closet right now. If I could bang on the back wall and go to a place where animals talk. How amazing would that be? Um, so I'm I'm in a closet. Okay. Come out. Come How out. How ironic. How ironic. Spend my whole life coming out of the closet and then back in. get into voiceover but and you're radio work. And all of a sudden, I'm right inside. back in. Yes. Yeah, so the, I have my sound panels here, and there's a door. There's like a tiny little space where I can slide the door open, and they can pass me things like food and beverages. Oh, too funny. Um, okay, oh, so goodness. what was the question? So, so moment in time. You're saying that we're so a moment yeah. in time. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to leave all of that in there because I find that was I find the, is there a tiny little door in there? I mean, that's hilarious. 
let people visualize what my studio looks like. Um, yes, I crawl through like a, it's like the scene in Being John Malkovich where he's on like the oh, eight and a quarter yeah. floor, eight and a third, seven and a quarter, something like that to climb through the doorway. So, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> oh my God. You really should loud. have video on. <laughs> Unless you're like a giant, you know? Oh, anyway for fuck's sake stop barking I'm, i might take that part out <laughs> oh you know what let me just um tell yeah. this um uh can you pause i've got a um yes. i'm supposed to um talk with this house sitter um oh my god um do you mind if i just tell her that um uh Yeah, you put on your glasses. And we're just going to be a couple more sure. Um no, This is an important question. I'd like to answer it um, on the podcast. Um, I'm going to just say 11.15, please. Yeah? Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. All good. Wait, I need you to go back to, where are you? There. Okay. Here I am. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we've had these moments. Yeah. And we've had the great pause. Yeah. And I have witnessed, saw it last night at a hockey game, um, people who behave as though nothing happened at all. The human forgetter is the universe's great joke. <laughs> it, it's, it's the, um, perhaps it was the emergency do-over system or the self-destruct system built in. You know, over time, the forgetter leads to greater catastrophe. You can look at things like what happened in your homeland, at what happened in Iran, and the devastation that has been wrought on a magnificent country with a remarkable history, a remarkable influence on almost everything that exists in the world today, from architecture to art to music to food, so much comes not just from Iran, but from so many of the countries in that part of the world. It is the heartbeat and the heart of modern civilization as we know it today. And you look at what has happened to some of these magnificent civilizations that have faced such trial and tribulation. and. You look at our own country, you know, you look at, you know, the United States, um, which has been flawed from the outset as everything is flawed because humans are involved and humans aren't perfect. Um, but a great, the great promise of a magnificent experiment in this republic that was started several hundred years ago um, that feels very wobbly today. 
and that the the danger to civilization of the othering of the tribalism of the inability to disagree without hatred mm-hmm. feels almost insurmountable mm-hmm. feels almost insurmountable yeah and so what do you do with that with that vision with that vision like how do you hold steady in the drift of that it can't happen people you're crazy this transformation stuff is bullshit it's too woo woo i'm fine just how i am my world is okay so why do i have to care um i would argue um that anyone um really truly feels um that their world is okay and um, I think that um, if someone says that, it's probably a big indication that their world isn't okay, <laughs> because those who aren't defensive about it will talk about what's good and what isn't good and, and all of that. Um, you know, I, I, it's such a large conversation, but I really, what I feel that it comes down to is which wolf you feed, you know? Um, truly, because um, it is, um, it's, it, I think us as humans, um, you know, we default to, um, we're prey, <laughs> so we default to fear, um, and, and fear uh, unexcavated um, becomes hatred. Um, and, uh, and it's really easy to work from that space because it's from a defensive space. You are defending yourself and defending your family and defending your country and, and all of that. Whereas in, if you, I mean, and it sounds cliche, but if you choose to work from a place of love, it's actually the most well, <laughs> fearless thing and the most courageous thing that you can do. And it's actually the hard road. There isn't anything woo-woo about it because then you're willing to have those hard conversations. You're willing to own things and not point fingers. You're willing to be accountable, not just for yourself, but for for everyone. And knowing that, that your self happiness, there's that word again, minus the world's growth and sustainability and happiness is fleeting. It's not in, it's siloed. Um, So when I say that what my vision is, is a world that's unrecognized to us unrecognizable to us as we are now, I really mean that, like that we continue to challenge ourselves and challenge each other and and in doing so help each other rise. You know, like I I 
I won't get into political debates. Um, I'll, I'll say, you know, where I stand, but it's not, I'm, I'm not interested in those conversations. They feel surface level. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. And then from that, let's start a different conversation. And if that sounds too woo-woo, okay, you know, you don't have to be a part of that conversation. But my hope is that enough people are interested that a shift will happen. And to me, at least in my lifetime, the pandemic has been the biggest pause and the biggest shift. And again, on a personal level, but very much on a global level, um, you know, with, you know, things like climate change and all of that included, like it has paused us and we can choose to truly reset or, or go back to, or have another version of what we had. And I hear you saying that most likely that is what's going to happen, but there it's, well, that's the possibility of it. But what I hear you saying and and where I think it makes perfect sense to, for us to, to close is it's about walking into that pack of wild dogs. It's about, it's about walking right in yeah. without aversive action, without I'm here to scare you away, without I'm so scared to be here, but to walk into that space with each of us in our own ownership, to look that fear directly in the eye, and to name it. And when we do that, everything changes. I love that. Um, Yes, and I think that if we can do that from a global citizen standpoint, Mm -hmm. then I think that that... I think we have a shot. And and I want to add to uh, close by saying that, you know, like the Rumi poem, The Guest House, all are welcome. All. I mean, so we can't discount, you know, our, our amazing, incredible inventions and all the things that we've done as a global civilization that has furthered us celebrate those and 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 discount our our fears and our hatred and all of that it's just it's literally what you allow to drive the bus so if you allow fear to drive the bus we'll get more of the same if you allow hatred to drive the bus, you've seen what happens. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> so choose wisely. And that's it. And, and absolutely, walking into a pack of dogs rather than running has made all the difference. Mm-hmm.